Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. All right, thank you, Anderson. Appreciate it, as always. I am Chris Cuomo, and welcome to Primetime. Have you heard how many more deaths the key White House model says reopening will cause? The number just between now and August is nauseating. Fauci and the CDC head say we don't have this under control and that reopening may cause outbreaks. States are begging for money to test and trace. Red state governors as well echoing the concerns, begging to be able to use federal funds to help in their own way, testing and tracing. Well, when will this president and his pals respond to desperate times with desperate measures? California is. They just made a surprise move ordering all state university campuses to cancel most in-person classes for the fall. Is that too much? Is it enough? We'll discuss. Also, we have another key guest in the Georgia homicide case. The man who owns that house that's under construction, the one that Ahmaud Arbery has been shown in walking slowly, surreptitiously through the house in his final hours. The apparent house that a recused prosecutor suggested Arbery burglarized. It's time for the truth. What do you say? Let's get after it. Ten thousand more people will die potentially from reopening too soon. What a question we have to ask ourselves. Is that worth it? Now, if you don't like the number, complain to the White House. The key coronavirus model often cited by them projects that by just August, we'll go from the 82,000 plus lives we've already lost to maybe 147,000 due in large part to reopening. Now, this estimate is nearly double the forecast of 74,000 from just two weeks ago, 10,000 more than predicted just over the weekend. Why? You know why, because that's what happens when you stop socially distancing and isolating. Is this what prevailing looks like? Even Republicans had to admit that we still have not responded. We have not seized the moment when it comes to testing and that testing is absolutely essential to building the trust we need to reopen. A Republican-led Senate committee did not perpetuate this president's poppycock. What our country has done so far on testing is impressive but not nearly enough. All roads back to work and school go through testing. We treaded water during February and March. Uh, and, uh, and as a result, uh, by March 6th, the U.S. had completed just 2,000 tests, whereas South Korea had conducted more than 140,000 tests. So partially as a result of that, they have 256 deaths and we have almost 80,000 deaths. 
I, I find our testing record nothing to celebrate whatsoever. Now, ordinarily, Lamar Alexander, head of the committee, and, you know, Mitt Romney, the party's one-time choice for president, would be believed, but not now. Not now. Trump's grip on his party strangulates any gasps of truth, even from senior members. Despite being wrong consistently, misleading consistently, and outright lying too often, most Republicans in our new CNN poll still say they trust Trump. If only we had the herd immunity to COVID-19 that so many of these folks have to the truth. Only Fauci, Dr. Fauci, approaches Trumpish trust with the right. Will they listen to him when he says something that this president has never even come close to suggesting? My concern is that we will start to see little spikes that might turn into outbreaks. And if you think that we have it completely under control, we don't. The right direction does not mean we have by any means total control of this outbreak. CDC head says same thing. The proposition is, how can we beat the virus if we can't even get on the same page about how important the fight is? If we can't even agree on what it takes to win? Let's bring in Dr. Sanjay Gupta and Andy Slavitt. Uh, first, just a slap in the face of reality for us, uh, fellas. Sanjay, 10,000 deaths is the approximated cost of reopening as of now. Have you ever seen America make a choice like this before? Uh, no, no, I don't think most people uh, alive today have ever seen America make a choice like this. And, you know, I mean, I, I hate to say it, Chris, but you know, these, these numbers, these models are all over the place. Uh, that might even be low. I mean, you know, we, when we saw the numbers sort of jump up in this particular model, uh, they went to whatever, 134,000 or something like that. And uh, that was not even taking into account all the states that were they're opening. We know that more people are going to get infected as a result of this reopening and more people are going to probably need to be hospitalized. And obviously, sadly, more people will die. I think that that's, you know, this is uh, this. Uh, Dr. Fauci and the task force have been consistent on this all along. We have these criteria. They're not perfect. No matter when you open, there will be new infections, but here's how to do it as safely as possible. Those really seem to have been almost completely thrown out of the window at this point. It's, it's, it's baffling, Chris. Andy, um, what do you make of the idea that it has not changed the uh, stubborn resistance to having to do anything more, uh, that it's been long enough, even with that number put out there as what it will mean. If you do it now, 10,000 more may die. Doesn't change the calculus. Why? Well, Chris, uh, I think there were some clues in this uh, and what's going on in the Senate right now. I mean, first of all, I want to commend the Senate Health Committee for a very constructive hearing, really not about politics, but about the issues at hand. But the tell is this. Mitch McConnell is asking for one specific thing in order to uh, uh, get a bill negotiated that he sends to the president's desk. And that one particular thing is liability for all employers if the economy reopens again and people die or get hurt. That's the one thing he wants. And I think we should step back and understand mm. that what they're effectively saying is open the country, not at their risk, come back to work, but it's not going to be on me. If you get injured, if you get sick, if you get hurt, that's going to be on you. And that shows how much confidence they have 
in what the consequences will be if the economy reopens. They just don't want to pay for it. Hmm. Sanjay, what do you think of that? That's that's interesting. I had not heard that before, Andy. I mean, you know that that is uh, it's it's um, uh, it's it's hard to think about and imagine that way that uh, people are sort of already thinking about the liability of this, acknowledging that people are going to get sick and die, and now just trying to figure out who's to blame for this. I mean, it's it's tough. I I, I get it. People want the economy to to reopen, but the, to think that far in advance about this, uh, as opposed to just thinking about <clears throat> trying to prevent these deaths, I think is. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's jarring a little bit to hear that, Andy. Well, I'll tell you what, though. Let, let's stay very sharp in terms of what we know of the mood in the country right now. Do people want to reopen? Yes. Do they want to reopen, Andy, if they do not get the confidence of testing and tracing to understand what is safe and what to base their risk analysis on? Every poll says no. So what do we know about the country? And is Trump really in step with where Americans are? Well, look, first of all, I think generally speaking, people want to reopen safely. Right. And people are in a bad position either way, and, and everyone gets that. But, but here, here's the point. I think maybe the less important question, to me at least, is what do people in the country want? And how can we lead people? Because we know that there's going to be conflict. We know that all of us, including those of us who know that the right thing to do is to stay at home, are going to get stir crazy. Uh, we're going to wish the circumstances were different. And it's at those moments that we need leaders to help guide us there, to pass legislation that supports us, to put in place testing and tracing and isolation right. so that we can feel safer. Just basically, although to tell us that we're doing something good, instead of to play into the maybe a, a populist rhetoric or popular sentiment out there, and trying to make people happy, even though it's going to lead to people dying. It's an interesting juxtaposition, Sanjay, that the president's thing is about being anti-elitist. His buddies over on Fox State TV, anti-elitist. 10,000 deaths are the price tag that their model puts on this. Talk about being elitist. If that's okay, who do you think those 10,000 people are going to be? Who's getting affected the most? The working class, the brown working class. Who's most afraid of reopening too soon? The brown working class. Who's getting sick the most? The brown working class. Who's dying the most? They are. There's nothing elitist about that. It's everything that's elitist. Yeah, I mean, th this is this is um, uh, obviously the, one of the one of the great tragedies here is that people who are keeping the country running, uh, making it so that we can all actually be be able to be safe at home with with delivery, with transportation, the hospital workers, the frontline workers are are predominantly black and brown America. I mean, you know, you look at uh, I'm from Michigan, uh, you know, 14 percent African American population, 42 percent of the deaths uh, in that state are African or black or brown America. So it's, uh, it's obviously disproportionately affecting a, a certain segments of the population. I do think, uh, though, what Andy said is, again, very interesting, this idea that, you know, everyone's talking about the vaccine, everyone's talking about the therapeutics. If we have good testing in place, because people are going to go stir crazy, they're going to want to get out, even people with the best of intentions, if we can start providing some sense of, of confidence that they are not harboring the virus in their own bodies, if the people around them are not harboring the virus, it's going to make it at least uh, psychologically uh, you know, more palatable for people and obviously less likely for them to get sick. I, I don't know what the right amount of testing is. I think it's like one of those things where you'll know it when you see it. 
but it's going to be enough to actually get people the confidence to start going back out because they're going to at some point. Just got to make sure we do it as safely as well, possible. We just have to be clear about what the it is. The it that you will see is people making risk assessments for themselves. That's you right. know, America is not sheeple. Uh, you know, they take information. They're very savvy about what's in their interests. And the only reason to not jump on testing is to hide the truth. And the mistake is that it winds up being something where this administration is going to be hoisted on, on its own petard. The French expression of being blown up by the own bomb that they're carrying because they're hiding from testing because they don't want people to know the truth because they believe the truth will make it harder to reopen when in fact the opposite is the truth. If people know the numbers, they make their own risk assessments. And the American people are a ballsy people. They will go out and do what they can. They'll take risk if they're not being um, played with. And right now they know they're being played. Sanjay, Andy, thank you very much for keeping it real for people on this show. Now, Dr. Fauci, very cautious today. Why? Because he has to fear the unknown, not pander to it for advantage. Asked about schools, colleges, reopening in the fall. We know we have to do it if we want to go back to work. How can you go back to work if your kids are still at home? California took a big step today, ordering state campuses closed for now. College, but still a huge move. What will it mean? And also, let's look at it. Was it the right move or too much? Another very valued doctor and the head of the Cal State system. The perfect guests here next. Back to school in the fall. That will be the big moment. Now, college students, their semester may look a lot like the semester that just ended if they go to school in California, because that state today canceled most in-person classes at the 23 campuses in their state university system. This is a big move. The man who is at the head of the university system is Timothy White. He's the chancellor of the California State University System. He made the announcement today. We also have Dr. William Schaffner, not only a leading infectious disease specialist and friend of show, also a professor at Vanderbilt and on the task force to determine that prestigious university's school plan. Gentlemen, Thank you for making yourselves available on such an important night. Happy to be here, Chris. So, Chancellor, reservations. Uh, and if uh, not, what do you believe made this the right move at this time? Well, let me be clear. Uh, the California State University actually remains open, and we're steadfast in our commitment to inclusive excellence, and, and we stand ready for the next academic year as well. It will just be different in some ways, but not in all ways. And at the front of our list is the health and well-being of our students and employees. It's the most important factor in any decision we make based on science and data and public health advice and medical advice. And we're announcing the planning, the planning horizon now, because we want to give the maximum time and flexibility to our students, new students and ongoing students, as well as an opportunity between now and the fall for more robust professional training to our faculty and staff, not only for the instructional aspects, but also for the vitally important academic support and, and student support services. Uh, give, so, me, give, me a little give me a little context though, uh, Chancellor, on, on two levels. Uh, first, 
Um, why was it in the best interest of the students to not have them be in-person classes, to do it now uh, with different uh, technological means the way we're doing? Why do you believe uh, that it is necessary uh, to keep it that way in the fall? We're a large university, over 500,000 students and about 55,000 employees across an 800-mile swath of California. And uh, you know we're concerned with the, the epidemiology of the disease. And, uh, and what is forecast not only currently, it's starting to stabilize a bit in California uh, in different regions, but not all. Uh, but as we look to the fall term, uh, we see another wave coming that coupled with influenza perhaps will be even more difficult in the moment now. So if you have 500,000 plus people in close proximity on a daily basis, vibrantly interacting with each other, that's not conducive to mitigating the, the spread of the disease. And we can't change the biology of COVID-19. But what we can do is change our behaviors individually and collectively as a university to minimize the current spread and the morbidity and mortality associated with that. Chancellor, what does it mean for the employees? You said 55,000, somewhere between 52 and 55,000 workers, depending on uh, your, how you want to count heads. Uh, what does this mean for them? Um, do they keep their jobs? I mean, how do you sustain that population? It, it, takes, uh, it takes the brilliance of our faculty and staff to deliver courses using virtual technology as it does to do it in person. So we have simply pivoted the, the venue, if you will, from all of it being in person to some of it being in person uh, based on a set of criteria, but a lot of it being done virtually. But it still takes the, the brilliance of faculty, staff, the technology IT folks are doing amazing work mm -hmm. in order to deliver and engage our students uh, uh, with this new reality as we pass through this, this, uh, this pandemic, which isn't gonna last a month or two, or even for another six months or 12 months. This is a, a an approach where we think about this over the course of the next year or two. Of how do we do our part as the largest uh, four-year university in the country to uh, mitigate and still make progress to degree for our students and have them meet their career objectives sooner rather than later. Well, it's good. I mean, I asked you the second part of that question because, you know, you're such a big job base uh, for local communities on lower levels, uh, you know, underneath the teaching staff. Uh, it's important to know that you're taking them into consideration also in terms of job uh, security. Thank you for that. All right. Now, doctor, the burden on you, uh, Dr. Schaffner, is defending the proposition. All right. People will hear what California is doing and they will say, Liberal lunacy. This is nuts. COVID's on the way down. It's not as bad as you guys told us it would be. Things are plateauing and going in the right direction in many parts of the country. We're reopening. We don't know about any wave in the fall. This is way too much, way too soon. What do you say? Well, what I say to that is that actually the chancellor has uh, articulated a very conservative position. He's taking into account the uh, solid forecasts of all of us who are infectious disease doctors and in public health that there will be a substantial surge of COVID in the fall. And, of course, all of the issues that he's articulated, colleges across the country are thinking about right now, fretting about, trying to make their own decisions. It's true in my own university. I'm a member of uh, one of several task forces that are addressing all the issues and more that Chancellor White mentioned. 
We haven't made our decision yet, but uh, it's not an easy decision. As with all of these things, I say there's no right, no wrong decision, only tough decisions. The uh, numbers that came out today, the model that the White House often cites from the University of Washington research projecting that reopening now because of the necessary reduction in social isolating, which obviously will be needed to reopen, uh, 10,000 more lives is the current estimate of how many may be lost in addition to the former projections because of reopening. What do you make of that proposition as a choice for America? It's an awful choice because on the other side is all the financial depredation that's been going on, the cultural and social disruption. So it's an, an exceedingly difficult balancing act. And it's very important as we go forward to look at what the local circumstances are. In our circumstance, looking at what's happening in Nashville and Tennessee, how well are we controlling this outbreak? That applies to institutions across the country as each of them is making their own decisions, watching very carefully their own capacity to respond to positive students and all of the issues related to student housing, dining, uh, teaching the students, uh, all the issues in uh, managing a university, all of those things come to the fore as you try to make these very, very tough decisions. And as Dr. Fauci added today, this idea that younger people are immune, he said there is no basis for that in science. Chancellor White, a really important day, uh, and I know it's a trying day. So thank you for making your case to the American people on primetime. I appreciate it and good luck with the decision going forward. Dr. Schaffner, as always, um, thank you for the value added to the show. My pleasure. Thank All you, right. Chris. The other big story that we have to stay on, Ahmaud Arbery's killing. All right, we caught it on video, right? And if that video hadn't come out, who knows if you would have ever heard about this. But this is the other video. You keep seeing it. I'm running it in real time. You keep seeing it slowed down more, slow them down, keep repeating them going into this construction site. Why? Because this is why they had to kill him. This is why they had to take the 25-year-old's life. Look what he's doing. Let's look at what he's doing. His family's attorney says the video inside a home under construction just proves that they were unjustified because no matter how much you slow it down, no matter how much you show it to you, what do you see him do that justifies what they did? Let's talk to the man who owns that empty home. What did he believe? What is his experience there? What does he think about how that videotape is being used? His perspective, key, next. All right, we have an important new guest tonight in this Georgia killing case, all right? We're following the investigation of the shooting death of Ahmaud Arbery. As you know, there is now a second piece of video under scrutiny. It's surveillance footage showing the 25-year-old walking through a construction site that same day. Could you call this trespassing? Yeah. Could you call it justification for what the accused did, the McMichaels? I don't know how. The McMichaels, the accused in this case, told police seeing Arbery on surveillance footage, were they talking about this? Triggered their actions. Does the owner of the home, Mr. Larry English, agree with that? 
He joins us now alongside his attorney, Beth Grady. I'd also like to note, uh, the team, we're working all the relevant parties every day. Georgia Governor Brian Kemp, Lieutenant Governor Jeff Duncan, GBI Director Vic Reynolds, State Attorney General Chris Carr, the DA's office, the Glynn County Police Department, all have either said no thank you, just declined, won't respond, except for DA Jackie Johnson. Uh, they sent us a statement to say her office acted appropriately under the circumstances, but no comment. We're going to stay on it because we have to know what happened. So, Mr. English, thank you so much uh, for taking this opportunity. I know it's not convenient. I know it is frightening to be in the crosshairs of this situation for you and your family. So thank you for taking the time. You're welcome. And Counselor you as well. Thank you for making this possible. Uh, Mr. English, what is, what is your feeling about the fact that surveillance video of your home in construction has become relevant and used the way you believe it is being used in this situation? Well, first off, I would like to say that this is a tragedy and I'm deeply sorry, sorry for the uh, family and their loss. Um, and also it's, for my family's loss of peace, it's been destroyed um, when we were just innocent bystanders in the situation. Um, as far as the video goes, uh, I don't want it to be put out and misused and misinterpreted for people to think that I had uh, accused of Mr. Arbery of stealing or robbery because I never did. You never filed any report. You never called 911 about this video. The video of February 23rd, I made no calls. Mm. Do you believe that uh, Arbery stole anything from your house that day? No, whatsoever. Um, now, the McMichaels told police in the police report here that he had been seen, Arbery, had been seen um, on surveillance video. Did you share this video with the McMichaels? No, not whatsoever. Did they know of any past incidents at your construction site? I'm not, uh, I'm not sure about that. Nothing you told them about? No. Were you aware of any string of burglaries that they say were going on in that neighborhood? Because we can't find police records of any string of burglaries in the neighborhood. I was. And what did you know about what was going on in the neighborhood? I only knew of secondhand information that maybe somewhere in the neighborhood of January that a vehicle had been entered and some guns taken out of it. Are you aware that it was the McMichaels who filed that report? No. That's what uh, police records show, according uh, to our reporting on this, uh, that they had reported it. Um, do you have any relationship with the McMichaels? Do you have any feel for these gentlemen? No. Hmm. Uh, have you reported in the past things that happened at your construction site? I have. What kinds of things have happened and who do you think did it? Uh, the only thing that happened was uh, my cameras would notify me I would be two hours away 
and my cameras might would notify me and let me know somebody was on the property. And what have you seen on your property before? How common is it for people to enter the site? Mm, not very, I mean, not very common at all. Um, in the daytime, didn't have very much traffic other than subcontractors and people working there. Um, and that would have been about it. And didn't you report, though, that you believe something had been taken from the house, but you couldn't identify who did it? No. So that's a false accusation. Oh, good. Good to know. Thank you very much. So you never reported anything about any fishing equipment or anything like that? Uh, the instance with the fishing equipment has got blown out of proportion. That was out of a boat, not out of the structure. Um, and I'm not exactly sure when or where that happened. It, the boat was transported from uh, Brunswick to our location to where we live two hours away. And I never filed a report on that because I don't know for sure exactly where it happened. Boy, you're right. That is getting thrown all over the place as a potential other situation that Arbery may have been involved in. And just to be clear, you never filed it. You've never accused him. And you don't have any reason to believe that Ahmaud Arbery had anything to do with that. That is correct. What do you think of the fact that one of your neighbors saw Ahmad trespassing on your property? And it is fair. I mean, you have counsel here, although, I don't, you know, you don't need it. It's great to have you here, Beth. Thank you for being here. And you're free to speak whenever you want. It's certainly different than the interview I had last night. Uh, but um, it, you could call it trespassing. He didn't have a right to be on the property, and yet he was there. One of your neighbors called uh, and said that he took off from there. How do you feel about them making a report to 911 about what they saw uh, with Arbery leaving the property? I really don't know exactly how to answer that question. Um, uh, You know, everybody in the neighborhood kind of looks out for each other's property. It's a a small, tight-knit community. Mm. Um, You know, Counselor, let me get you in here for a second. You gave us a statement saying uh, that uh, from Larry, just to understand the reckoning of his perspective on this. When Larry saw the photos of Mr. Arbery, um, you, the, the, his first impression was that Arbery was not the man captured on video inside the house on February 23rd, and that uh, he said that to the neighbor. Yes, um, my understanding is that when Larry got the the alert that the video had come into his phone, it took him about 20 minutes to look at it, and when he did, he called a neighbor just a couple of houses down and said, you know, I've my video is showing someone's in the house. Is there someone there? And the neighbor told him, well, someone was, but he's been killed. And so, you know, by the time Larry even saw the video, Mr. Arbery had been killed. And I think it was pretty soon after that, that Larry saw some photos of Mr. Arbery and and he had not known him before. And when he saw those photos, he did not believe it looked like the man who is in the video from February 23rd. And then subsequently we heard um, that that probably was him. But my understanding is Larry didn't think it resembled him. But Larry can speak to that if if I've gotten that wrong. But that's my understanding. That squares with your reckoning, right, Mr. English? Yes, correct. And as I was trying to establish with Roddy Bryan uh, last night, he's implicated directly in the police report by the McMichaels. So I was giving him an opportunity, or at least trying to, 
uh, to explain why they would see him as part of this. Similarly, tonight, I wanted to afford you the opportunity um, to distance yourself. And just to be clear, you've said you don't know the McMichaels. I do not. Did I, you? Know, I know of Travis. I only know him of just one introduction, and that was a very short, brief introduction. But you had nothing to do with what triggered their interest in Mr. Arbery on February 23rd. He wasn't even there I that day. No he was two hours away. He was, you weren't there. You didn't speak to him on the phone. You didn't give them access to the surveillance video. You didn't contact them and tell them what had been seen at your home. No. Mr. English, I appreciate you taking this opportunity. Because we're not getting anything from the authorities, we're having to figure out, and look, this is the job of journalism, who knew what, who didn't know what. And it's very important, especially because your home has become a focal point of this, to get your perspective on what you did and what you didn't do. You've been very helpful in that regard, Mr. English, and I'm sorry for you to be involved uh, in any of this. I'm sure it's not easy for your family either. And I'm sure the Arbery's will appreciate your condolences. Thank you, Mr. English. Thank you. Thank you for having us. And counselor, thank you uh, for uh, having the courtesy to make this happen and trusting uh, that it would be about the truth. Appreciate it. Good night. Good night. Uh, Now, there's more information here. Arbery's autopsy is out. Well, why do we need that? We know what happened. But how it happened in terms of detail and sequencing is not going to be as simple as you assume. I guarantee you the autopsy will be a factor in testing the accused reckoning that they were attacked, okay? So we're going to look at that autopsy through that lens and whether or not there was prosecutorial misconduct early on, not just inaction, but bad action. Let's do Cuomo's court. We have Laura Coates next. Today, an autopsy from state investigators was revealed and tells us that Ahmad Arbery died of multiple gun sh- uh, shotgun wounds, uh, three shots to be exact. Let's bring in a better mind, former federal uh, crimes prosecutor, Laura Coates. Uh, always a pleasure. Thank you. All right. So let's put our head to this. The autopsy. Well, we know how he died, but there can be very important information uh, to use as a prosecutor. What will this autopsy mean? Well, first of all, how disturbing. We know there was a shotgun in close range where they say at least, what, 13 shotgun pellets exited his body and 11 were found in the wounds, two in his chest and one on his wrist. The reason that's important is because you want to look at the idea of what transpired. Was he in a struggle? The idea of having his wrist be injured, was it a defensive wound trying to block his body? Was it of him actually trying to get the gun away from himself? How close range was involved? Also, it's important to look at, of course, is the number of shots that were fired. The number of shots being fired can indicate to you just how much of a act of self-defense was being claimed and whether it's meritorious for Travis McMichael. You would think the idea of whether it's a gun that has a rapid sort of trigger function or one that requires you to load each time or one that requires you to do it in succession. It's all very important to understand just what was at play and whether this was somebody trying to get away or somebody who was an intent Mm. on actually harming and killing ultimately Ahmaud Arbery. The ballistics analysis may show that if this kind of weapon had to be pumped to refire or something like that, it shows more intentionality mm-hmm. than the defense. Uh, the idea that's out there of, oh, it doesn't matter. It's a stand your ground state. Uh, you know, it's all fine. 
Is the analysis that simple? No, it's not. First of all, in order for it to be a stand your ground state, well, you have to first understand whether it's applicable here. And remember, it goes down to foundationally this idea of even in self-defense or stand your ground, you cannot provoke the circumstances that lead to the aggression and then play the victim card. The law is there in order to ensure that people who have been victimized are not required to retreat, are not required to run away. But in the scenario we're playing out here, and the scenario you're seeing in the videotape and the footage as it's being explained, is there the victim in this particular instance is Ahmaud Arbery. The idea of him standing his ground would be the actual inquiry of him trying to run away. But as far as Travis McMichael, it seems that he not only provoked it, he pursued and hunted him, and then is now trying to, I understand, claim that it was wholly self-defense. It's inconsistent with what the law actually says and stands for. Now, the other big thing that we're hunting down here is whether or not the McMichaels were fabricating their basis of suspicion. Not that it would help them, uh, but the idea of they saw him on surveillance video. Well, Larry English says he never shared the surveillance video or anything about it with the McMichaels. There was someone else who called 911 on Arbery for trespassing, arguably, in Larry English's house. That now leads us down to pretty much only that person who could have told the McMichaels about what happened there. As with Roddy last night, that they say Roddy was helping them, essentially. He tried to angle him off. Mm -hmm. Roddy's lawyer says that's not true. How fundamental to this case is the basis that the McMichaels acted upon and the truth of it? It's fundamental to show just how inappropriate their actions would be. If their basis was that they heard about somebody who was committing a crime in the in neighborhood, and the tragedy of that interview just gave with Larry English is the idea that the person that they presumably were trying to protect or trying to act in the interest of had no interest in pursuing it, did not report it, was not invested in the first time he heard about it and actually saw a young man had already been killed and rolled over on the street to make sure he did not have a weapon, according to the police report by these two men. And so what you see here is the idea of what's fundamental is whether or not it goes to the Georgia statute. The citizen's arrest law only applies, Chris, if you have immediate knowledge or have actually observed a crime taking place. If nobody has reported to them about there being a surveillance video capturing anybody who's either trespassing or doing anything whatsoever, then it's, it undermines any argument that they had met that requisite element of being their immediate knowledge or that they had a firsthand observation. What it does speak to instead is that they believe that they were somehow deputized to act in this way, to have shotguns, to pursue somebody who was trying to run away. And one more point, Chris, it's so important here. When Ahmad Arbery was trying to run away, he ran back towards the direction he was coming from, as in back to what they are perhaps claiming was the scene of some crime in some way. Not only was he running down the street, it was one o'clock in the afternoon. It is inconsistent that he would actually return to a place as if he was a fleeing criminal. All of it speaks to a tragedy and, and probably the reason why, Chris, more than 70 days transpired. And this is the best story they can come up with. Mm. I find that odd. Well, what a, and two other things are odd. Uh, we've now heard from three different angles on this of the reporting. The only other break in that anyone seems to know about for sure is the one the McMichaels reported according to Martin Savage's reporting about their own vehicle mm -hmm. and what they said was a stolen firearm. Was that part of their motivation? Did they blame Arbery for that? Because we also know that they had experience with Arbery. 
This is going to be a big part of this story as we fill in the blanks going forward. And no one helps with that better than you. Laura Coates, thank you. Let's take a quick break. Thank you. We'll be right back. Hey, a belated happy Mother's Day. It was nice of the love gov to bring our mama into the presser Sunday. There was actually an important message for all of us in that moment once you were able to get past this desperate cry for help. I know I am your favorite. I know you don't want to say that because you have Maria there. I know you want to see me because I, I know you. I know I'm your favorite deep down inside, but you don't want to say it. Yep, 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 yep. Poor guy. If he needs to hear it so badly, can it really be true? But I digress. For me, the taller, stronger son who provided my parents with their only grandson, who's named Mario after my pop, it's not about what my mother sees in me, but what I see in her that matters tonight, and frankly, what we all see in our mothers. We celebrate them not just because of how they treat us, but in how they treat themselves, their sacrifice. Ask my mama why, and she'll give you an answer with one word, familia, family. We take care of family because we're devoted to something bigger than them or us, the cause of the collective. But right now, the American family is in a period of dysfunction, we're estranged, and acting strangely. 10,000 more Americans could die by August because so many places are relaxing social distancing? What happened to no man left behind? Now it's 10,000? Is okay? Look, it's common sense that that's what would happen. You don't need the models to tell you that if you stop social distancing. That's why those who attack this reality do it with snark and cynical self-interest, like Senator Rand Paul did today. We never really reached any sort of pandemic levels in Kentucky and other states. We have less deaths in Kentucky than we have in, a, in, an, in an average flu season. It's not to say this isn't deadly, but really outside of New England, we've had a relatively benign course for this virus nationwide. Remember that beard, that's Paul's COVID beard. He had the virus and he still seems to be suffering from a type of sickness, but one of the soul. Does he really think that he has no obligation to anyone but his state? America's never won by going every man and woman for themselves. Only when we are all in do we win. We are not prevailing, not until we show the desperation to get tracing and testing. Until that, we'll be failing because we're failing to give the truth to the people, which will give them the trust they need to reopen. You can't wish a virus away. It won't miraculously disappear. The president traces and tests every damn day. And everyone around him has a mask on. Now, he doesn't because he wants to keep up the Fox farce, this BS that COVID-19 is overrated. I guess the anti-elitists over there are okay with 10,000 more dead. These liars and race baiters want you to think Fauci is not to be believed, that social distancing is about stealing your freedom. Remember what your mother told you about people who have nothing good to say. They should say nothing at all. But more importantly, remember what our moms taught us in their own glorious example of love and action through giving, even when it's hard, even when it hurts, because that's what family is all about. Thank you for watching. CNN Tonight with D. Lemon, right now. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. 
Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.